0: This is the art of discussing, where everyone is committed to having discussions with people sharing different points of view while respecting the person expressing them. We're your hosts. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Kate. And we're excited that you've joined us. Let's get to this week's episode. Welcome back to The Art of Discussing. I'm Kate. And I'm Ben. And we are talking about U.S. domestic policy, the justice system. We have Dustin as our guest. Ben, do you want to talk a little bit about our goal for the justice system episode and what Dustin's going to be speaking to?
0: Sure. Um, A little bit about uh, this episode is, you know, as we've been talking about U.S. domestic policy and uh, just exploring in general Uh, looking at systems that we have in place to reorient you to what we're talking about systems is Kate and I have decided our, our definition of system is the things that are written down that are entrenched. And that's the system, right? Like things that are trying to change the system. We, we are viewing as trends. Our guest today, Dustin um, is a trend setter in that regard in that he's, an activist for uh, reform of the uh, justice system. We'll talk more about that later. And and these trends, if they persist and are successful, are written into and become part of that system. So uh, today we're talking about the criminal justice system. Uh, just with that, Dustin, you wanna give us a little background about who you are, um, our, our connections and um, I'll, I'll help out with that. So Dustin.
2: Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, My name is Dustin Campo. I started a company called Justice Java, Cold Brew with a Cause, after facing a lot of employment discrimination after my release in 2015 uh, from serving five years incarcerated in Arizona. I had three different companies offer me a promotion, and instead of promoting me, they fired me. Even though I told them my background and the nature of my crime in the initial interview before I ever got the job, I always felt like if that was going to be a problem, let's let it be a problem right now. And so I was always forthcoming with that, and then I would show up, do good work, be an appreciative employee because you know I because I had been let go from so many jobs because of it. So I I really worked hard at a lot of these jobs, and they would offer me a promotion. HR would look over my my application and they'd they'd run my background and they'd be like, promote him. Not only can we not promote him, he shouldn't even be working here in the first place. We've got to let him go. So not only did I just did I not just get the promotion, I, I also got fired. So after the third time that happened, I got pretty sick of it and decided well, realized, I should say, that if I'm ever going to have any kind of financial stability or success for myself, that I'm going to have to build it for myself. And I built the space of Justice Java to be a space where other people in the same circumstance can have that same security and rebuild their life.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And I actually uh, had the good fortune, um, whilst out on a Sunday, uh, saw Dustin's coffee truck and, and had some justice Java. Great stuff by the way, <laughs> really, really good. Uh, and, and we chatted a little bit and that's how this, uh, he came to be a guest on our show. I mean, thanks for sharing with us that you're, you know, have you personally have gone through our criminal justice system as much as you can, you know, just really brief overview like going through it what are what were your impressions opinions sure and but just like your experience in going through that really we kind of wanted to, want to know and i'm i'm sure that it's a challenge to as you're going through the system go oh they did that well good job guys or wow this if something does is not working well is not efficient i'm sure that stood out to you a little bit more than this process was speedy and you know efficient. Naturally, um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience uh, going through? Just nutshell, right? Like,
1: can I yeah. can I add on to that as much as you're comfortable with? And right. how, what like not just your experience, but how that led to you wanting to create a reform movement, quote unquote.
2: So when I got out, I started volunteering with a bunch of different advocacy. Uh, groups, different nonprofits, and whatnot, because I saw some horrible things while I was on the inside. I saw people die in very strange circumstances. I've seen people assaulted and and there was just a a complete vacuum of accountability in that space and and the misconduct happens on all sides it's it's inmate on inmate assault it's it's officer on inmate assault and it's also just blatant medical neglect um, that led to one man dying he the process for going through medical is you fill out a piece of paper they process the paperwork in a few days you might get a response setting a, an appointment for the doctor this guy was having chest pains, and he, with the influence of the people on the yard, uh, of the inmates that have influence with the correctional staff, they were able to get him to go to medical the same day. So he goes to medical, he's there for a couple hours, they tell him he has heartburn, and they send him home with a bottle of Maylocks. The chest pains continued, and... He went back to medical. We pulled for him to get a second visitation to medical in the same day. That's the only time I've ever heard of that ever happening. And still they refused to diagnose him with the heart attack that he was having. They sent him back to the pod with the bottle of Malox. And he died at about 3 a.m. vomiting that maylox into the toilet because it wasn't heartburn. It was a heart attack.
1: And was that, that medical in like internal medical or at an actual hospital?
2: They should have sent him externally to a hospital based on the symptoms he was describing to them, but they did not. They handled it in-house and that's why he died.
1: And is that so for for our sorry, I have I have questions apparently for I I know your experience was in Arizona. I don't know. I'm sure you know other people from other states potentially um, in, you know, in your movement that you that you've met over time. My question is, was there a difference between is there anything between because I've heard like private versus privately run versus state run? state by state how things like that change inside of the treatment inside the justice system or prisons jails uh, so i, inside I of have M.
2: experience mm-hmm. on both of those yards the first yard that i hit after sentencing was uh called m70 it's run by the geo group which i believe is a division of cce um i could be wrong <laughs> about that but that was a private, cce if you know Corrections Corporation Enterprises or something like that. They're, so this is a private one, is what you're this, saying. This first yard okay. I think was a private okay. yard, and um, there there are significant differences between that and the state-run yard. Um, they have a variety of different programming that is, I'm not going to say available, but it is. It's a little bit easier to access it, and there's a little bit more variety. I was able to. Well, no, that was on the state yard um they have so my crime is sexual in nature i had an inappropriate relationship with a high school girl when i was in college so all of the yards that i was on are pc yards which stands for protective custody and because the crime is a sex offense no so can be on a yard lower than a security level three so also, sex offender got it so the the All the sex offenders are on three, four, or five level security yards. So the Geo Group one had a three yard. That's the one that I was on for the first year or so. And they do have some programming available, but I hear contradictory stories about it. Like that you can take your sex offender therapy while you're on that yard, and then that'll count towards the therapy that you have to do as part of your probation after your release. But I've also heard that that was just. Kind of, it didn't count, but that lacks some credibility. The, the big difference between the private yard and the state, there, there are so many differences. It's so nuanced. Like the food is completely different. The food is way better on the private yard, but the circumstances, uh, the way the staff treats you, all of it's worse. Um, it may be a cleaner facility, but the correction staff that you have to work with are awful. They're just security guards, essentially. Um, They just, uh, to my knowledge, they just have a guard card. And they are way more dehumanizing. So they know what their business model is. They're they're operating a business. And so I've seen them go through and write several hundred tickets in the same day for things like, you're hanging your towel in the wrong place. That's an infraction. I'm going to write you up and they just go through and write a bunch of tickets because that chips away at people's good time. Sure, it's not all gonna stick. Some people might not have good time, but if you write enough of them tickets, that's dollars in the bank account at the end of the day. And those private yards have a contract with the state of Arizona for occupancy. They have to keep above a 90 or a 95% occupancy. They have to keep the private yards beds full or they have to pay a penalty. And when I say they, I mean us. That comes directly from our tax dollars. So if we don't criminalize enough things and make enough criminals to keep these beds full, then we just have to pay more money. (laughs) And the legislators don't always care about that because it's not their money. It's tax dollars. So it's, yeah, they pull the purse strings, but it doesn't come directly out of their wallet. So their, their mentality on their spending is a lot different, but it's part of the process on how this stuff keeps getting reinforced and reinforced. You know, the corporations, uh, the, the corrections corporations, the private industry of private prison yards has a very significant lobbying presence, not just in our state legislature, but on the national level as well. So they are directly in the ears of, and adding money into the wallets of our politicians that are supposed to be representing
0: us. Interesting. Okay. Wow. So private facilities, first of all, it sounds like all the employees, all the uh, employees of the private facilities are, are well aware of their business model and support that during the course of their actions, right? Like through, from what you've said through, uh, writing up violations that would they not normally write unless, unless they were trying to uh, get to a a certain point. Is that, is that what you mean by that? Like, I like, why are they just start writing? It's
2: it's policies that shouldn't even be an infraction in the first place. I'm telling you, not a ticket for hanging my towel over the foot of my bed instead of over the door of my locker or vice versa, whatever the hell. Okay. Got it. Like, not not even like I just threw it in a wad on the floor in the middle of the hallway. Yeah, okay, write me an infraction for that because I'm being a jerk. But, like, I have it hanging here to dry instead of there to dry. It's, it, it, mm. you know, and, and then there's umpteen other examples
0: of, of stupid little things like that. Okay. And... So let's, let's back up. That's, I got a lot to say about, I want, you know, I want to dive into that, but uh, let's back up. So in, in kind of looking uh, before in preparation to have our, you know, this episode, I I've studied uh, there's a couple of different, you know, pillars, stages, whatever of law enforcement, right? Like on the outside you have, and most, most people can grasp that as, as it's being explained, you got the community slash law enforcement. You're talking about the police, you know, sir, you know, security guards, stuff like that. You got the courts and the um, like the justice system where they're, pro- you know, prosecutors, defense attorneys, you know, judges here. And then so arrest happens, law enforcement, you go through the court system, defense of uh, prosecutors, and then you're in the prison system or the correctional system, right? That's the corrections is the last last part of that. So I guess you my know, question. Let me fill out the beginning of,
2: of that a little yeah. bit. So, after I was charged, I was, uh, they, so they indicted me. They indict you by a prosecutor presenting a case to a grand jury. You're not present. You have no defense counsel present. It's just a prosecutor and a jury. If they agree there's enough evidence for uh, a charge, then you get indicted. After you get indicted, they can put a warrant out for your arrest. They can either just wait until you get stopped for a traffic, like a traffic stop or something, or they can actively seek you out. In my case, they actively sought me out. They waited in front of the elevator at one of my classes because I was a student at ASU. And they, it just happened to be for no good reason that I skipped that class that day. (laughs) So they ended up coming to my apartment. They, they later told me that they had tried to get me in my classroom. So they came to my apartment, they arrested me. So now I'm in Fourth Avenue Jail, not really understanding what the nature of my crime is, what my charges are, what's what, you know, what evidence is against me, who's making what decisions for what. So there's this just cloud of confusion, and you're locked inside a jail cell with other people that are pre sentenced so a lot of them don't really know what's going on you have some people that have been in there for years fighting their case but the point of saying that is that if you are denied bail which they denied in my case and there has since been a case that challenged that that said you can't just deny bail to sex offenders because of the nature of the crime that they're accused of bail has to be set on a case-by-case basis based on the evidence the determination of whether you're a flight risk all of these different factors, severity of the crime. So I was held, denied by uh, bond or bail, even though that has since been challenged and has been determined to be unconstitutional. So I'm locked in there, dealing with my case, getting little snippets of information here and there. When you're in there, you go to court once a month. You have a monthly court date. In between those court dates, you're just sitting in jail. There is nothing actively happening with you or your case. Yeah, you may be writing a document. You may be trying to read stuff or whatever, but you're just cooking. So that waiting and that being locked in that awful environment with horrible food, terrible conditions. The guards are the worst there than I've ever seen. And the conditions are absolutely deplorable. So you're you're locked in this awful, awful cage, the worst cage that you can possibly imagine. And then here comes the prosecutor here's a plea you want to get out of here 10 years we'll send you from here onto a prison yard because all the buzz and chatter from all the people in in county say oh yeah the prison yards are nothing like this they would never get away with doing something stupid like that the guards would never do that when i was in county pre-sentence pre-trial all of that they did a, a search and threw us all out into the rec room I'll expand on that in a minute. But while they were going through doing the search, one of the officers just shot a pepper ball off into the room that we're all confined in. So they get to leave and go back to the guard tower. But we're all locked in there choking on this mace ball because it filled the entire room and there is no outside. So the rec room is just a corner of the room with an extra wall. That's another part about being locked on the inside while you're fighting your case. I went 10 months without breathing fresh air or seeing the sun. I was inside, locked in that room for 10 months straight. I even fought. I filed a motion to remand, which says that prosecutor, when she talked to the grand jury, she lied. And because she lied, you have to start over. This is is not a legitimate indictment because it's based on a false pretense. I won that with the judge. They started my case over. There's also a law that says that they're not allowed to hold you for more than 72 hours on no charges. Once my charges were dropped because the prosecutor didn't do it right in the first place, I was held for five days and they wouldn't let me go. There was no new indictment. It came down five days later. So for those last 48 hours, I was being held unconstitutionally essentially okay and so once that happens you realize there is nobody looking out for my civil liberties there is nobody there is no oversight over the corrections that make sure that they're abiding by the rules like good little boys and girls even though we're there to be held to account for the in you know for the indiscretions And the crimes that we've committed and they're committing crimes against you while you're in there to be held accountable for yours. So once you realize that that's the dynamic at play, you realize like the gloves are off and and this shit just got real. So then when the prosecutor comes at you with the plea, this time
0: you listen a little, little more closely. Can we pause there uh, just before so you're still in the jail if, if I, I just want to unpack this because we're sure. still talking about being in jail. And in a, in a, in a second, I want to ask someone with your experience the the difference between jail and prison, which a lot of our listeners may not know. So I'll get to that in just a second. But in the jail. Which is which just for our listeners before Dustin uh, helps us understand that better there's a distinct difference between jail and prison. And a lot of us who have never been in the system collapse that a lot, right? Like we say that interchangeably, Um, like soldier Marine, which also two different things, people just want to let you know, Marine here, soldier up there and, you know, whatever. Anyway, they're different. Anywho, uh, but what you're telling us here is and it's something that I would not have known right like it sounds like just to hear you talk about your prison experience before and talk about your jail experience that your jail experience is actually you seem to have it that, it, that it's worse than prison would you agree with that is that is that painting that picture right and and some people in the it, uh, were telling you hey prison is different than this prison is air quotes for people who can't see me right um better uh better conditions than jail and that's private yard in that i
2: ended up on they called that place camp snoopy camp,
0: camp camp what camp snoopy camp snoopy
2: yeah just just uh just to take all of the ferocity out of it just
0: to make it as yeah camp snoopy just where the <laughs> and another another question I have is your defense right like so most most people understand you have a defense either it's a private defense or a public defender and I'm hearing you talk about the prosecutor which are about to go into that a little bit more but what is your dealing with or experience or whatever around your public defender right like are you I mean it sounds like you're picking all this up you Talk to me about a little bit about your relationship, if, if one can say that, with your public defense. Sure. So the difference between
2: jail and prison, think innocent until proven guilty. Innocent, you're still in jail. Once you're convicted and you're guilty or you sign a plea, then you go to prison. So while I was being held innocent until proven guilty, I had a, a private attorney. And he was not that familiar with sex offense cases. It's a very, very specialized field in in the legal field. So he, he did the best he could. I mean, he filed those motions to remand to send it back to the grand jury. And they worked because so the reason why we had to keep going back to the grand jury is because the prosecutor said that she had a full confession from me. So, of course, the jury is going to indict. Why would a grand jury not indict if there's a confession from the criminal that he did it, even if there isn't? So we said, send it back, do it over again. So we sent it back. She did it again. Same lie, same verbiage, all of it. And while I was incarcerated, while I was in jail, I should have been allowed to attend my grand jury hearing, and despite my requests and all of that, they absolutely refused to transport me. So they wouldn't even let me be present for the grand jury hearing, even though to my knowledge, I have a constitutional right to be present and I was in custody. So it's not like you can just say I didn't show up.
0: Oh, huh, okay. And so a couple of things with that. Wow. And when What happens when you contest that, right? Like she, she said something that's not true and I, I just assume, so correct me if I'm wrong, that you're contesting that or that you're, you're telling your public defender to the, the popular vision I have in my head is that you're either sitting next to your public defender or talking to them on the phone and saying, I mean, that's BS or say something or, you know, whatever, what happens, what happens if that, any of that took place?
2: So, yeah, I feel like a lot of that, I feel like uh, some of what you said is what happens in crime dramas, in NCIS and these other procedurals, where the prosecutors are talking to the criminal and there's a lawyer there and everybody's getting their story straight and trying to figure out in real time what's going on. It it just doesn't work like that. You are sitting in jail cooking, and you are working with your attorney. So I had a, a private attorney, which is different from a public defender. A public defender would be appointed to you if you were indigent. So if you don't if you don't have any money, and you can prove that, um, you know that you haven't had income or whatever. Otherwise, you do have to provide financial statements to try to get a public defender. Um, that falls under the Miranda part of If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. So um, you have to prove that you can't afford it. So so my my private attorney would meet with me, but we would meet, he would come in through some way through the jails and he would end up at the end of my pod. And there was a a screen, a, a plexiglass window there. Uh, with not, not even with any holes or anything. So there's absolutely no way of anything getting passed back and forth. So we're basically in two different rooms that share a window and he's asking me, you know, details of it. And I'm, I'm reading the police report and the witness testimony and, and the grand jury uh, transcripts and I'm reading everything. I know my case, like the back of my hand, whereas he's got, who knows how many other cases he's dealing with while he's dealing with mine. And to try to figure out the nuance between what actual ha- actually happened, when he can only sit down with me for, what, maybe an hour at a time, maybe a couple of times a month, you know, we, we would do some phone calls, but there's only so much that you can say over a phone call, because all of that's recorded, all of that can be used against you. So, it, it is a very tricky dance to, you know, be a part of your case, have your, your attorney you know, work in your best interest, but also have all of the information that they need to do that. It's it's way more difficult than it sounds.
0: Interesting.
1: I have a question. So how much of what you're describing, because I have to assume to some level that state by state, county by county, city by city, things are different, right? Whether it's the grand jury, how that's handled, the jail, the laws, all of it. So how much of what, based on what, I don't know how much knowledge you have of other states, but based on what you do know or what you've researched, um, what exactly, what, what would you say is, is it mostly how Arizona does it? Or is this mostly how, you know, not mostly, Is this is this an Arizona representation or is this more uh, nationwide? Is it the rule? rules? The exception? Is, is this communicating at all what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, and yeah. I guess my other question is, for your crime, uh, being a sex offender, crime, sex offense, versus non-sex offenses, is there a difference in that, both in your state and nationwide on how things are handled, whether or not, I'm not going to get into the shoulds or coulds, but you know, is that different, you know, in some way as well?
2: Yeah. So what I've been describing is basically the general outline from how a person gets charged, what's actually happening leading up to the trial. And then um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my plea deal and, um, and, uh, and sentencing and how that works. Most of that is pretty standard from state to state. Where you get a lot of variation is in, like, after you're released from prison and you go on to probation, what are the rules of probation? How is your probation officer? What are the policies of the probation department itself? And and so how strict or lenient might they be? Wild variation in that, but in in the kind of step-by-step from charging and fighting your case and how the prosecutors use your garbage circumstances to leverage a plea against you. 96% of all cases are resolved by plea bargain. That's across the nation. That's not an Arizona stat. So that pretty much happens every single time.
1: Where is that? What's your source of when you, what, that's another question I have. When you're sharing stats, can you share the sources of those stats for yeah. us and our listeners?
2: Each individual stat might be difficult because I just have kind of accumulated the knowledge over time. Yeah. (laughs) data comes from uh, BJS Bureau of Justice Statistics. It's a division of the Department of Justice. There's another group called forward.us fwd.us is their website. They uh, are kind of a data repository. They uh, kind of amalgamate analytics and research and so they do a lot of bigger picture um, kind of data and have statistics on uh, racial disparities and and, uh, all kinds of things like that. The ACLU is another place that I get a lot of my information. I volunteer with them. I serve on the planning committee for Arizona's smart justice campaign. We have a goal of cutting the prison population in half. And, uh, we work with legislators and we do direct advocacy work and, uh, there's a lot involved in that. So yeah, a a lot of my data is just, you know, my experience is my lived experience, but the data, I try to be really strict about being correct on that because I don't want that to take away from the value of my story.
0: Right. Um, So, yeah. Wow. Well, I think this is a good time. I, I got it uh, pulled up over here where we want to because we keep talking about systems and like actually what what is constitutional. And this is this is perfect. Right. This is we're talking about the bail the jail system, innocent till proven guilty. We have a, a lot of sayings uh, that people do know. Everybody has heard the saying innocent till proven guilty, you know, things like that. And what's in the Constitution. So the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, which and they're not for those of you who aren't aware, the constitutional amendments, they don't just normally it's like a paragraph or a couple sentences, right? Like they're not just, you know, it's not you don't have to comb through the amendments. Um, But then there's been judicial reviews and interpretations. And all of that—that's something different. But the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America says: excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Uh, and that's—that's that's the totalitarian. Uh, that's the—that's it. But I—I I, I see right, especially something that I can see for myself in your story so far, Dustin, is like you said. With your jail prison analogy, right? Like if you're being held, you're in jail. And then you have your day in court, your trial, your whatever. And then if convicted, you go to prison. Nobody in jail has yet been convicted. Those people go to prison when they leave. So that's that's the difference. The question yeah. that I then ask in the in light of knowing
2: that is. Why are we treating innocent people worse than we're treating guilty people? How does that make sense in a nation that calls itself free? It, it just is not that. And the cruel and unusual punishment part for Christmas while I was being held, the rumor was, and it may not have been, but it the rumor was that some right-wing Christian conservative group said these poor souls need Christmas carols to brighten up their spirit and give them some holiday cheer. Whether or not that's true is irrelevant. The actual thing that happened was they took one CD of 12 Christmas songs and they played it on a loop 24-7 for the entire month of December. Even after Christmas, they kept it going. So again, innocent people... Cruel and unusual
0: punishment. Uh, it it <laughs> that's interesting. Was it, it was, was it, it loud? What was the volume it, of that? If you don't mind, my oh, it varied. It varied. So the nice guards would come in and turn it down, and the assholes would come in and turn it up. Okay, and for our listeners, um, the only I know that sounds like a very odd question. I know it does, um, but with my military <laughs> background, it a, yeah. um, it's it is is well established that. Loud music not nece- I mean not necessarily Christmas carols obviously but like heavy metal or whatever turned up and played 20 20- on a constant basis is a identified method of torture right like not the only one but that happens right so that's why my question was like was this just in the background kind of you know noise or was it kind of blaring full blast and you can't go to sleep or whatever it's it's sleep deprivation tactics um from a uh that standpoint so uh that that's where my question came from
2: yeah and it was definitely loud enough that you could hear it all day all night and the guy in the cell above me hung himself in a room
0: with 12 other people right so for for my point and this is this is just Ben uh, talking, not having been, whatever your crime is, um, not having had your day in court yet. I mean, that sounds pretty excessive for, for myself, right? Like just, let's, let's keep going. I wanna, we wanna get the whole story, right? So, I mean, we're only in jail right now. We're only in jail, um, we're only, I do have one question before I let you keep going, uh, which I, it keeps crossing my mind every time you talk about jail. Um, You're saying that you're just kind of cooling your heels in jail until your day in court. Is there any access to uh, a library or books or anything? And that's I I, I have a question of that. If if I was ever to go to prison, uh, to jail, ah, see, I almost did it, guys out there. Uh, If I was ever to go to uh, jail and there was nothing for me to do, I had limited access to a public defender that I saw, like you said, uh, like an hour uh, a month because he's got so many cases, right? It's probably backed up. the The thing that came up for me was like, "Hey, does that guy like come in here and Hey, I need you to look up some cases, right? That might help your case, or maybe you can look up some laws or look up some whatever. Because from my point of view, I mean, you're you're in the you're in the system now, right? You've been booked. You've either had jail posted or not posted or denied or whatever. Um, you've got nothing better to do perhaps you want to look up a couple of law books, maybe, you know, familiar yourself. So is there access to any of that in, in uh, jail? There's a pile of books in the corner on the floor.
2: Um, but none of them are legal books. It's, you know, Stephen King and whatnot. Got Uh, it. Okay. And have books sent in. So my family did send in books. Um, Depending on who's in there and and just the timing of everything, there's almost always somebody in there that's been fighting their case for a really long time. And that person probably has a couple of, you know, maybe a legal dictionary and some basic stuff on some case law, you know, a little bit about precedent. And but there, there, no, there are no resources. There is
0: no access to information. None of that. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, now please let us know, like you're, you're in there, you're finding your case. What happens next? Um, I got bounced around to a couple of different places in there
2: and, and, you know, met some different people that tried to help me with my case in different ways. Um, the prosecutor came at me with a plea for 10 years flat. Um, so no credit for the time that I had already been in County, County jail. No, like So most people, if you get sentenced to a certain amount of time, you'll serve 85% of that time. That is an Arizona thing. We serve 85%. The last 15% is considered to be your good time, which is what those people on the private yards try to take away from you by writing all those tickets. So the flat time means it's not 85%. You'll serve the whole sentence, all 10 years of it, again, with no credit for the time that you've been in. So after I proved that she lied to the grand jury by telling them that she had a confession from me when she didn't, they um, came back at me with a plea for five years credit for the time that I had already served in County. And I would do 85% of that time. So ended up being about four, between four and four and a half years of total incarceration, including my County time. Mm, Talked it over with my attorney, my family, Felt out some of the other guys that had been in there and it, it just became more and more obvious that this was the best deal that I was going to get. They had charged me with 11 charges. Uh, All of them were felony two, felony three. And if I would have been convicted on them, each one of them was more than a 10 year sentence. I was facing 140 something years in prison if I would have gone to trial and lost even though the quote unquote victim and I only had sex one time, they break that sex out, that sex act out into all of its different component parts. So this part of your body touched this part of her body. That part touched that part. There was oil. There was vaginal penetration. There was intercourse. She, you know, all, everything both that you did to her and she did to you even though it was all i say consensual even though it can't be consensual because she was a minor and can't give consent but to say it accurately there was nothing forcible about my crime so to be facing those kind of charges was um you know i mean it hits you hard reality <laughs> reality sets in real quick when you're like oh wow so my entire life is on the line right now. Okay.
0: Hmm. Okay. <sighs> okay. So take us through that last piece where now you're in there, you guilty verdict read is generally how it happens. And now you're leaving the courts part of it. First courts law part and now you're headed to prison. What is what is What can you say about the, the correctional system um, on, it, on its face on its after that? And you, again, you had private, you, you experienced both the private and the uh, state side, right? Yeah. So after you decide
2: you're going to sign your plea, there's, you know, you're only going to court once a month. So you usually have one court where you uh, plead guilty And then sometimes it will be another month that you have to wait for sentencing. So you'll sign your plea and then you'll go back and sit in that cooker for another month in County jail and all the misery and all of the awful garbage that's happening with it.
0: And none of that time counts, right?
2: It counts in my plea because of the way it was written, but it might not count for everybody. Got it. Um, So then, you know, then you go back for your sentencing and then you come back and you sit there and you cook a little bit more until they work out the logistics, who's going to be picking you up, who's going to be doing transport, who who else do they have to transport that day? They've got to get a route. They've got to get a driver. They've got to get extra security. They've just got to work out all the logistics of moving. Does that happen quickly? No, absolutely not. None of this happens quickly. So then eventually you hit a yard, you go through a whole intake process there, which takes hours of, you know, new fingerprints and making you an ID card and making sure you have the three sets of clothes and your underwear and your socks and all the basic stuff that they're supposed to issue to you. And then you hit the yard. So they, they tell you where your bunk is and they basically kick you out onto the yard and you got to go find your bunk. Usually there's always some people. Now yards are very segregated by race. Each race kind of sticks to themselves while they're in there. Mm-hmm. And each race has somebody who's known as the head who's kind of in charge.
0: What they say. Just by tendency, right? Like there's no, there's no rule for that.
2: There's no rule imposed
0: by the corrections system to do that. That's just
2: the way it operates. Got it. So usually some people from your race will see that you just hit the yard and they'll come over and, you know, because some people try to exploit the new people that hit the yard and some of the people that have been there for a while will try to help you and make sure you get to where you need to be going. And they also don't want you just wandering around like an idiot, making everybody look bad. <laughs> you know, there's kind of some saving face in it too. Like, you need to start doing the right thing right now. Here's where you need to go. Here's how you tie your sheet around your mattress to make your bed. Here's where this goes. Here's where that goes.
0: Okay.
2: So then finally, that all. Ha- oh, and here's your bunkie. Yeah, meet your bunkie. Talk to them. Feel each other out. All of that. So then, after being there for like a day, somebody says that guy called you a snitch. He said you said something back when whatever. And he said, you're a snitch. So you guys are going to go in the rec room and uh, whoever comes out is right. So they throw us both in the rec room and now it's fight for your life. And he ended up going out of that room first, but only because he was running away. (laughs) So it's usually the first person to come out the door is the victor because the other guy's in a heap. This time he bolts out that door and does a lap around the yard faster than anybody has ever seen. I was right.
0: And that's what, that's the determination is as I understand that's if you win, then you are right. Right. So hence extrapolating that even further, you're working out, you're getting strong, you're getting proficient in combat because that makes you more correct than everybody else. So you're a, you you're, you're more you're more able to argue your case by being physically capable. Is that to understand? Okay. Yep. Um, pretty accurate.
2: You know, you ever heard the term come correct? You better come correct. Yeah, that's what it
0: that means. All right. Well, so let's I don't want to get too much down into there. What I want to talk about is coming out and being uh, your experience or if you had any experience with being disenfranchised uh, on the, on the outside, right? Like I, and as you can think of things that illustrate the like prison and what it is, I know that there are routines and that, that, you know, start to be ingrained with you. And those are hard to leave behind when you're out, right? That's, that's the way that you survive for X amount of time that you're in there. But let's talk about when you get out, uh, the things that like your life is, what I want to, what I want to talk about is, I I have the impression that your life is permanently changed. All I know about that is every job application I've ever filled out, and I know this because of my military service, is you were always told, like, if you are dishonorably discharged in the military, that's something that you've got to put on every job application going forward. When I was made aware of that, what also came with that is they also want to know about any prior convictions, right? Like it's in that same, in that same uh, question, right? Are, are you dishonorably discharged or have any prior convictions? And if you're answering yes to that, that, that really follows you for the rest of you know, your, your life, your career. Can you talk a little bit about coming out and post-confinement, post-incarceration, what would you change about now? Uh, And I know that it varies state to state before I ask that, Kate, uh, you're very uh, on top of like, there's a national thing to that and a state by state thing, but the the topic of disenfranchisement is very hot button. So can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah.
2: So coming out, the most restrictions are going to be imposed upon you by probation. When you come out, if you had good time and you got out early, that last in Arizona, that 15% I was talking about, that would be the time that you're on parole. But if you have probation, that's in addition to that. And if you have a longer amount of probation than you have parole, they usually just waive the parole and make that go away and just put you on the probation so that you don't have this extra transition from the group of being on parole to the group of probation officers it's just too messy so they usually just simplify that process okay Uh, so there
0: are there's probation officers and parole officers like can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two
2: yeah a parole officer let's say you violate the parole officer is still kind of uh, acting on behalf of the prison so if you violate parole they can just take you back to prison Don't go. Don't collect $200. We don't need to ask a judge. Just sit there and finish your last 15% or whatever would be left until what's known as your absolute discharge date. Okay. Probation though is a probation officer, uh, usually at the County level and they impose the conditions of probation. So the conditions of probation are agreed upon when you're sentenced back You know, at the end of when you're in jail, when you're signing your plea and all of that, that's when that's decided. But none of that starts until after you serve your time and you come back out and you're released. So the normal terms of probation are several pages, three, five pages, something like that. The addendum, what's known as the sex offender addendum is an additional set of probation terms that gets heaped on top of that. This is conditions like you're not allowed to be around any minors, you're not allowed to go to a park, a swimming pool, the mall, you're not allowed to go to the library, you're not allowed to go over to people's houses, you're not allowed to have friends who have minor children, you're not allowed to be around your own minor children, even if while you were incarcerated they came and visited you in prison every weekend when the visitation was available you know, because obviously all that changed with COVID and my release was pre-COVID. So that's, there are obvious differences with that. But anyway, some things that you might've been able to do when you were in prison, you're not now allowed to do when you're on probation. Um, You're not allowed to have any access to the internet, no smartphone, no tablet, no computer, no laptop. I was only granted permission for that because I started my own company and I needed it to do that, right? Who runs a business on a flip phone? But that's what they mandate that you get. You have to get a flip phone. You have to have a dumb phone. So.
0: um, Is this blanket or is this case by case? Like, is this.
2: This is for all sex offenders. There's an additional like 10 to 12 pages of restrictions that get added on top of the normal rules of probation that everybody has, whether their crime was a sex offense or not. Okay. So that extra addendum is this massive set of rules that just keeps getting expanded it just keeps getting bigger it just keeps getting worse no matter how much advocacy we do no matter how many times we tell them that the data says that sex offender recidivism is 3% the supreme court has routinely cited that it's as high as 80% they base that off of a 1983 article in psychology today written by a guy named Ira Elman who said, that's not what we were saying. What we were saying is that in the 80s, there wasn't data. It could be as low as 35%. It could be as high as 80%. We don't know because we don't have any data to look at. However, the Supreme Court has continuously repeated over and over again that sex offender recidivism, recidivism is 80%. It is not. You know, a GP person, a person who gets convicted of burglary or or any uh, any non-sex offense type crime they actually have a higher likelihood of committing a new sex offense after their incarceration than a
0: sex offender does okay and g gp gen, general population just correct right yep. okay and uh for our listeners recidivism I know what you mean when you say that, mm-hmm. uh, but can you um, can you explain to everyone what recidivism is?
1: Sure.
0: Recidivism is committing a
2: new crime. Mm-hmm. Now they look at it, they break it down in more detail than that, especially with SOs, because recidivism for uh, a probation violation or uh, a traffic ticket or um, you know something non-sex offense related is different than if they committed new sex offense crime. So they look at that, they break those out and look at them specifically.
1: So that, okay. that stat that you shared, the 3%, is that all recidivism or a specific form of recidivism?
2: That is for uh, new sex offenses. Okay. So, so for a sex offender to commit a new sex offense, it, it, is, it is 3%. Some states, it, it, range, it does range state by state. They did a, a metadata analysis of something like 2,000 inmates in the mid to late 90s. And uh, of all of that, they determined that it's, it's 3%. Some states were as high as 5.9%, but that was like the highest one on the list. So okay. sex offender recidivism almost doesn't happen. And if you increase the education, so if we just educate them, if they get an associate's degree, recidivism drops. If they get a bachelor's degree, it's less than 1%. If they get a master's degree, sex offender recidivism is effectively zero. It's the, the percentage is within the margin of error. So they can basically just say it doesn't happen.
0: Uh.
1: So uh, I'm sorry, Ben. Um trying to figure out how I want to ask this question. What is your response to people's concern or citation of a concern in arguments dealing with sex offenders specifically around, I don't want to say fear, but potential, I guess, of, you know, what people call urges or needs to fulfill something when it comes to their prior convictions. I understand you're saying it's potentially three to 5%, but there is definitely a concern or an argument out there that may, I don't wanna say discount that, but also, but maybe that is valid inside of that concern, you know, when it comes to sex offender recidivism, you know, and it's a different, because it's such a, you know, because of the, the nature of the crime, right? It's a very different animal in some cases than others. I mean, it, it's and don't get me wrong, like the, all of it is violation, whether you're burglarized or drug offense or whatever, but there is something different or considered different about that crime.
2: Sure. And the problem is that they make us all out to be Larry Nasser. We're not all Jeffrey Epstein. We're not all serial predators in the bushes. Stranger danger is largely a myth. The people who commit sex offenses, or the, let me say it differently, the people who are offended against the victims know the perpetrators in almost all cases. It's somebody, it's a friend of the family. It's, it's, you know, it's the creepy uncle. It's the, whatever it may be. It's, It's not somebody jumping out of the bushes. And there's also a real distinction to be had there. So there is a legitimately dangerous group of sex offenders, and that is the pedophile. Pedophiles are a very specific mental health diagnosis that they have a sexual interest in prepubescent children. So that means a child prior to adolescence and that is a legitimate mental health disorder. And there can be treatments that are effective. There can be, uh, it, it, but it, it is a legitimate concern, right? Because it, it's it's a truly dangerous person who is, is really, who may lack the ability to stop himself from committing an egregious offense against a minor. So- There's
1: also the adult, like when you say like, yes, pedophiles, but there's also- you know rapists that are that have ongoing or or multiple incidents against other adults as well
2: sure and yeah. that's and that's forcible rape that is a specific category or
1: pornography or other you know aspects of you know wh- granted I know pedophile pornography is different than potentially adult pornography quote right. unquote So
2: I had to interview, I I got to interview a judge and he sentenced a guy to 290 years because of mandatory minimums. He had pictures of children. He did not take the pictures. He did not distribute the pictures. He just had them. And because of mandatory minimums and the prosecutor refusing to offer a plea at all, it went to trial. He lost and the judge's hands were tied and he had to sentence that man to 290 years. 10 years per picture. He would have got less time if he would have killed one of those kids. How does this help the victims? How does this help survivors? How is this justice for anybody if the person who murders the child gets less time than the person who looked at them with, you know, with the pictures of them yeah obviously those pictures are awful and egregious yes they're horrible but we just need to have some perspective on which things are worse than other things the worst on the list is pedophiles and serial rapists obviously then we have the ones that are actively taking pictures of our children to distribute child pornography but the problem is the way that law is written It includes your 16-year-old daughter who took a picture of her boobs and sent it to her boyfriend. She just created child pornography and trafficked it, maybe across state lines, maybe whatever. She's now trafficking child pornography. How is this justice (laughs) to put her, your 16-year-old daughter that took a picture of her own boobs, in the same category with the pedophile or the person who's Uh, the the priest that's touching all the kids the you know we (laughs) the the system just lacks perspective I call it this bucket analogy where we just take the guy who peed on the dumpster behind the bar after it closed and throw him in the same bucket with Larry Nassar with Jeffrey Epstein with me and everybody that I've ever served time with all of us get thrown in the same bucket To the point now where there's 917,000 names on the sex offender registry and the cops say, what do you want me to do with this? I can't look at 917,000 people. Yeah, in some places we have some tiered risk levels and some risk assessment that kind of help us determine who's more likely to be dangerous than the next guy. Mm. But we're not doing anything proactive to try to weed people off of that list. There's tens of thousands of people on the list in California that they just have completely lost track of. They don't know where they are. Some of them were found to have already died. We don't purge the list at all. Not when people die, we don't have a way for people to age off. That's the other thing about the the list. The most common age of people being added to the sex offender registry is 14 year olds. They're being put on it as young as eight but 14-year-olds have the highest rate of being put on the registry. And we know that the risk of recidivism drops off with age. It's a solid, it's it's just a straight line from, from your 20s to like your 80s. It just falls off every single year. The, the likelihood of recidivism as people age decreases over and over and over again. Every year it drops. So the longer people are a friend offense free in our communities, the longer we can, the the more confidence that we can have that they will continue to be
0: offense free in our communities. And I again, have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so 917,000 uh, people on the, what I take is National Sex Offense Registry, right? Correct, national. What, um, given what Kate was saying, uh, do you have it, do you know, I, I understand that you're saying a lot of those are, you know, average age is about 14, you know, and they, they're they on it as young as No, no, no. The, the rate, so
2: the rate per 1,000 people of, mm. of people... Ah, is 14 per 1,000. ...registry, yeah, the highest rate of people, the highest age rate of people that, be, that are being added to the registry is 14-year-olds.
0: Okay, got it. Of the 19... Uh, 19. Of the 917,000... Uh, people on those uh offender registry, do you have any um I'm not sure where where that comes from, right? Like or do you have any idea as to what percentage of those are Kate risk. was saying, either uh the pedophiles, um the uh the serial heist. rapists,
1: mm-hmm. right,
0: right, like the violent offenders, right? Like if what I what I hear you inferring, I just want to make sure uh that I'm I'm hearing you right, is that you're saying the vast majority of these people are not the pedophiles, like 917,000 people on this registry, 400,000 of them are not pedophiles, 450,000 of them are not serial rapists. Um, But do you know, do you know what that, what that percentage actually, you know, is in in any sort of. uh, Not in a, not in a concrete way, but I can help you from logic at it. So.
2: They catch me, right? I had the inappropriate relationship with the high school girl when I was in college. My sentence was five years. Right. Barry Nasser would never get out of prison. The, the pedophile priest would never get out of prison. They have all these hands-on victims, multiple victims, or the serial rapist. By the time they caught him, he's got a whole laundry list of charges and he's probably yeah. never going to see the light of day again to be able to recidivate. So, so the process almost naturally weeds out the highest risk offenders. There is even a built-in kind of a catch-all at the end of it. If your prison sentence is up and they still think you're a danger to society, they have what's called civil commitment. They can just go back to a judge and be like, did you hear about what this guy did? Do you really think we can let him back out on the streets? He's a goddamn monster. So then they'll just put you in a mental hospital.
1: Yeah, but that is actually, from my understanding, pretty difficult for them to do. It is. To prove. It so, that, yes, I get what you're saying, but I also want to make sure we're not saying everybody's getting that potential treatment if no. they are considered a risk, because there are probably a lot more that are considered risks that are out there and probably shouldn't have gotten out for whatever reason and weren't civilly committed or, you know, whatever that is.
2: And, and let's also keep a little bit of perspective in that. A lot of these crimes go unpunished sometimes many times it never gets seen by the light of day the victim never speaks the there's they do speak and the family says you're a liar or you know i i know so many people that have been silenced in so many different ways when something legitimately egregious has happened to them um survivors of sexual assault their their entire family denied to their face completely gaslit them and said no that didn't happen to you even though it did yeah. um, so that happens not just in families that also happens in the military when your chain of command is the same people that you have to tell on your fellow right. soldier that or what if it right. is your commanding officer that sexually assaulted you then who do you report it to Then you got to go over your superior's head when you've been trained, that that's something that you never do under any circumstances. You know, it's, there's a lot of nuance here. And again, we just have to remember that not everybody is going to get caught for these kinds of crimes. So we can't just take everybody that does and make an example out of them. If we have a free and fair justice system and we believe in, in, paying your debt to society and coming back out and, and all of these things that we proclaim to believe, then we just need to have some perspective. They're trying to generate a new task force right now. In Arizona, there's just a brand new piece of legislation, HB 2718, I believe it is. I might be off. But they basically want to tie in. They'll give one public defender access to the panel. And then everybody else on the panel is going to be CPS, uh, Child Protective Services, or DCS, Department of Child Safety, as it is now known in Arizona, um, a, a police officer, the prosecution gets a couple people, mental health. Uh, the, they basically just stack the deck against you and take your kids away from you and, and manage every aspect of your life. I really hope that bill never passes because, you know, and, and we advocate, like, no matter how many times I say our recidivism, recidivism is 3%. They just passed a new thing in Arizona that changed the way the whole registry works, where if you were homeless, you might've had 10 days to notify them of a change in your living situation, your employment, this or that. Now you got 72 hours. And the problem with that is that the registry, if you make any kind of, so they, (laughs) it's been ruled in courts that it's not punitive, it's administrative, right? Right. But if you fail to accurately do all of the administrative steps, if you forget to dot all your T's and cross all your I's, then you have a two-year penalty. It's called a failure to register, an FTR. I can't tell you how many guys I've seen come back on the yard on a two-year FTR, in and out, and then they start you over on probation. They start you over on your treatment and therapy which you have to pay 45 weeks, uh, $45 a week to go to, they, you know, and there's so many other expenses of just being on probation. I did the math. It was like $3,400 a year. It costs just to be on probation in just okay. the fines and fees.
1: Yeah. You know, I I will, I, I will say that there are gaps inside of the criminal justice system In some cases, when it comes to like, for example, mental health, where you have law enforcement potentially not trained to deal with mental health and, you know, you've seen some some things happen where they're like, no, he's he's mentally ill. Uh, You know, I think that there's a gap inside of our mental health services and, and I'm not talking about sexual offenders. I'm talking about in general here and, you know. Clearly, we you know you've shared some things that you've dealt with inside of the the justice system of of your experience, uh, and I I guess you know there's a whole arguments out there about drug policies or drug drug related things. Can you speak uh, about and and Ben, if there's something that you wanted to talk about before we jump into this, uh, but can you speak about what you? see inside of the reform of the criminal justice system and some of what is uh what you have what you are pushing to reform for you know maybe in general for the for the for the uh criminal justice
2: system i believe we should completely abolish private prisons I believe we should completely abolish the sex offender registry because it is actually starting to become clear that it does more harm than good. It actually makes our yeah. communities less safe. There is still There are still ways to keep track of high-risk offenders. They would still be on probation. I, I have two terms of lifetime probation as part of my plea deal. So it's not like if we get rid of the registry that they're just going to be footloose and fancy free and climbing over your back wall. They still have umpteen measures of restrictions and safeguards. And, uh, you know, again, probation officers. I have a probation officer and a surveillance officer. There are all kinds of people keeping track of me and what I am doing. I have a polygraph test that I have to take every single year that asks me whether or not I'm engaged in any in, in if I'm engaged in any inappropriate contact or communication with any minors so we have enough walls around these people social isolation leads to a risk of all cause mortality which is a greater risk than smoking or obesity so people who are socially isolated it is more harmful to their health than smoking or being obese. All cause mortality is basically of all the things that can kill you. They all go up for people that are socially isolated in the aggregate. So we know what health risks are. We know why smoking is bad. We know why obesity is bad and how it's harmful to our health. And we have some kind of some, some basic understanding of that. But the fact that social isolation does the exact same thing to us is there. We need to look into that and get to the bottom of that because that's not just happening to people. So the easiest way to look at it is people that are in solitary confinement. I spent 21 days in solitary confinement, which I believe the Geneva convention came to the determination that anything over five days is torture or something like that. Depends on who you ask either way, it sucks all the way around, but The effect is is more pronounced in somebody that is completely isolated, for example, in solitary confinement. But that doesn't mean that the person who's not in solitary, but they're out on the yard, isn't experiencing any of those same things. They're still locked in a cage. It's just a little bit of a bigger room and it's got a fence and they can go outside for an hour a day or whatever it may be. Whereas in solitary confinement, you don't. They say 23 hours a day. No. 24 24 hours a day, all 24 for 21 days straight
0: on the private yard. Okay. Wow. I forgot my question there. I had a question. I totally completely forgot that. Hey,
2: I wanted to circle back. Oh, Oh,
0: go ahead. I was going to say, no, it was along the same lines as what Kate was asking you as well, right? And that is knowing what you know now about the criminal justice system, what would you, what would you change? Right? Like I used, I got, you would abolish private prisons. I, I didn't want to ask why Uh that was one thing. One thing. Um. So no why say again. No oversight.
2: There's no oversight. There's nobody, there's nobody that's making sure that they are doing things properly, that they're not violating people's civil rights. They are. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've been on the receiving end of it. They, Prison should not be a for-profit industry. Prison should be the absolute last resort, resort that there is no possible way that this person can be allowed to continue in our community because they are just too much of a danger to themselves or others. Not lock away everybody that has an, a mental health disorder like addiction, addiction, uh, criminalizing drugs and putting people in jail for that makes absolutely no sense, especially for low-level drugs like marijuana. Why that's still a federal schedule one drug it is bananas to me. And when you look at the history of it, it is directly the result of a propaganda campaign by our government imposed upon the people to get them to think that marijuana is bad. It, 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 it's essentially a false flag operation. Uh, the, the <laughs> I hang the art of the propaganda on my wall so that I never forget. I have one of the propagandists. Uh, they, have a, they were trying to fear monger about marijuana. And on the thing, they had showed syringes. Like they were trying to, to convey to people that people were shooting up marijuana somehow. Uh, it's just absolutely ludicrous. And the fact that we've never circled back and corrected that, uh, that immeasurable harm that has been imposed upon, you know, and we also know that it was a propaganda campaign for the reason to silence the left wing demonstrators by Nixon in the 60s. The, the whole war on drugs was a, a campaign to silence political dissidents. That's why they, okay. that's why they criminalize marijuana to go after the hippies and the flower children. And they criminalized crack cocaine more heavily than cocaine powder because white people were snorting cocaine powder and African-Americans were using crack. It was a scourge in their communities. And they said, well, these are the two groups that are the most active in opposing the authoritarian crap that we're trying to pull. So let's just shut them up by arresting them for stuff that they like. <laughs> I mean, we have Nixon's aides saying it blatantly on tape, basically saying exactly that we used these tools to accomplish this outcome for the reason of silencing political discourse that that opposes
0: what we want. Okay. So, All right. Well, so definitely, definitely want to uh, no no private prisons the state what else what else would we would we do here like um oversight i hear oversight there's no oversight that was a because um and not just oversight of the corrections officers but
2: oversight of the police oversight of the entire the the whole system The, the police make body cameras make them so that you can't turn them off or mute them i don't understand why they have a button on the front for that what's the purpose there Are are we supposed to be holding the people who are holding us accountable accountable or not? Are we letting them mute themselves at their own discretion? I just watched a police cam where the supervisor told the person he was talking to to go mute after dealing with uh, a politician who was trying to say that this woman who gave him a ticket for speeding was rude and inappropriate when he was the one that was being the jerk And yet after that interaction, the supervisor and the other deputy, they told each other to go on mute. Like, (laughs) So we have them interacting with a politician to work against another police officer, but then controlling. It's almost, not almost, I'll say it. It's tampering with evidence. Why are we letting police tamper with evidence in real time?
0: Okay. So I'm hearing there's no oversight over not only the prison system, well, private prison system as well but also over law enforcement where we talked about those pillars, uh, law enforcement, the justice, the courts and the, uh, correction system. So you're saying, uh, you would also have oversight and just to ask Dustin here, what, at what level, where would you, where would you put that oversight responsibility for oversight on the police? Would it be private oversight? Would it be a federal oversight? national, state, uh, federal and national, same thing, Um, state, uh, state level oversight, county, what level in your, would you give that to, to do that? The,
2: The Department of Justice is already the federal oversight agency for the states. So they're just not doing a good enough job. It needs to be civilian oversight that not only has full access to everything, to be able to walk onto any prison yard. Walk through any door in any public building, any space that is paid for by tax dollars to be able to just see what's going on there in and out of the police systems, in and out of all of the jails and prisons, full access. The other thing I would demand, equal resources to the prosecution and to the defense. A public defender does not have anywhere near the investigative resources and tools that the prosecutors do. They can hire experts, they can hire, uh, you know, they can just expend almost unlimited resources uh, because they got to be in their bonnet when the public defender or or the defense team has next to nothing. I mean, in my case, they wouldn't even hand over all of the discovery. They withhold exculpatory evidence. This prosecutorial misconduct has been, there are numerous cases that you
0: can cite that show that they've done it, Okay. So so now I'm hearing. So let's go back. I just I just want to take your point, right? Like yeah. oversight is necessary, and needed in the law enforcement aspect of it. And you uh, you say you know put that with the federal, the Department of Justice already has domain over that. And and we talked about corrections, right? The private prisons, there's no oversight. It should also be there. To note for our listeners, you may or not be aware of that, but the Department of Justice. Has an uh, arm. uh, It's called the BOP or the Bureau of Prisons, and whether or not how they conduct that oversight is probably not very transparent. I'm not sure about that process. Uh, But now I'm also hearing you talk about Dustin. Is the prosec? You said the you mentioned prosecutorial misconduct. So you're also pointing to the that middle pillar as well to be reformed. Okay. So, um, and that Ford, is equal, are, equal resources is where I heard you say.
2: Yeah. And also like, I don't know, maybe if your county attorney has a drinking problem, she shouldn't be your county attorney anymore. If she can't not show up to work drunk, then maybe Alistair Adele should step down. When all of her advisors are telling her that she should probably step down because her drinking problem is becoming a distraction, maybe she needs to sit down.
0: I don't
2: understand how a drinking problem is acceptable when you're so this is the difference right between what is acceptable when you're holding other people accountable versus what crimes you punish for right so for an elected official it's not appropriate for you to show up to work you shouldn't or it's not appropriate for you to show up to work drunk. Yes, it's a mental health disorder and you should get treatment. It shouldn't be criminalized like all the other drug addictions are. So you shouldn't be able to hold office, but you also shouldn't be criminalized for it either. You should have access to mental health treatment to treat your addiction. This should be our same approach with most crimes. Most of them, there is a social service that could come in in the middle and fix the problem. Dollar for dollar, the highest return on your investment is education. Arizona has the fourth highest incarceration rate in the country, and we're number 50th in education. We have the worst education in the country and the fourth highest incarceration rate.
0: Is that an accident? I don't think so. Mm. Okay. And so what I also heard you put in there, all very good points, but what I also heard you put in there at the end, right, is a note of, let's call it rehabilitation, is that uh, you mentioned mental health, um, they should be getting help, should be decriminalized. Um, are you, well, let's go back, because we never really talked about rehabilitation. Are there, in, in your experience of the criminal justice system in Arizona, was there evidence, was, was there sufficient evidence of rehabilitation programs, initiatives, that sort of thing?
2: No, and this is one of my gripes with capitalism because I don't feel like capitalism rewards virtue. Why do all of the the programs that we have that do social good have to be a (laughs) not-for-profit? Why do you have to form a not-for-profit to do good work for the community? You want to sell a good or service at any cost to anyone, no matter what it takes, sell, sell, sell. That's capitalism. You want to help somebody, you want to invest some time and give them some resources? Well, that, that all costs money. You've got to be a nonprofit to do that. So there's this real disconnect between what our values are and mm-hmm. what we incentivize as a society using the systems that exist. Capitalism is a system that exists. Democracy is a system that exists. The criminal justice system is another one. So these systems need to be managed in a way that uphold our values and generate the returns that we're actually after. You know, when we look at GP crime, crime overall, the recidivism rate is 66%. Two thirds of people that get arrested, serve time, come back out, commit another crime and go back. Why? Maybe we should work on that. (laughs)
0: okay all right okay it's any not
2: giving returns as an investment is my point. point two-thirds of the time we're failing we incarcerate them to punish them so that they won't do it again but two-thirds of the time they come back out and do it again so the return on our investment is is, is nothing it's negative we're doing more harm than good by incarcerating people most of the time
0: i see okay and I guess this is actually a question I had at the beginning that I never got to ask. Do you think that in preparation for having incarcerated persons depart from incarceration and rejoined American society, uh, that that population is sufficiently prepared for the event of rejoining society? Or are they like, uh, time's up? All right, let's open this up. You go out there, we have fun.
2: Oh, yeah, no, it's you.
0: absolutely waiting for
2: the clock to run out and then kicking your butt out the door.
0: If you yeah. don't have a,
2: a tail, as they call it, probation, parole, any kind of paper trail that follows you when you come out, if you've just served your sentence, like if I would have signed for flat time, ten years of flat time with no probation, no, no, no well, I would have had the sex offender registry but that. That's just right. administrative, you know. Right. But, you know. <laughs> but um, if, if there are no additional tails on your sentence, then yes, it is absolutely just wait for the clock to run out and kick you out the front door and wish you the best of luck. No resources, no help. They might give you 50 bucks and a bus pass or something. It, it's It's absolutely ridiculous. There's no programming. There's no vocational rehabilitation. There's no PSA, oh, you've just served this much time of a prison sentence, and now you're gonna be coming back out into society. Here's the things that you should know. There's nothing like that.
0: Uh, how to balance a checkbook. They, uh, you know they don't teach anything. Okay. All right, well, that's it's a bit, okay, it's a bit. Kate, is there any anything you wanted to add? Any questions yet? Uh,
1: I don't have any questions. i I, I wonder, and this is, might be a rhetorical question. Part of what we're looking at this this season is all around statecraft. So how, you know, states are nation states, not necessarily Arizona, California, Mississippi, New York, but how how they are serving. And Ben always makes this better than me, but how they're serving and protecting their people. Does that work, Ben, on the definition we're going with?
0: Yeah, just like what the role <laughs> of with the role of the government yeah what's its purpose
1: so I wonder if I wonder what I am kind of coming away with out of this conversation is that may be different state by state federally versus state because of our decentralized ish government system of democracy you know on on how this looks different and and how it's implemented I guess or practiced Based on, you know, so tying it back to what we were talking about, it kind of made me think of, think of that and that there is, there is some obstacles potentially inside of how our government and how our state craft is set up because of the democracy and because of how we started and, and that, that now may be seen or, you know, that, 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 you you know you've touched on or you know i, I think that there is there might be a correlation there i guess is what i'm trying to say
2: yeah there is it's kind of how you expend resources right in statecraft it's it's where the resources go so the united states spends more on its military than just about every other country combined on the planet and we have the worst humanitarian crisis with one nation invading another nation in their sovereign territory right now. And we are using next to none of those resources to help those people. What good is it doing us then to have the biggest baseball bat on, on the field? I, I don't understand what, what good it's doing anybody by having that. When other nations spend a fraction and get and have the same outcome, right? So why not take money from things that aren't working and give them to things that do work? Again, education. The most direct way to reduce your prison population is to throw money at education. It's something like a two to one return on your investment. For every dollar that you spend on education, you save $2 on incarceration later on down the road that you would have had to spend otherwise. So we have smarter ways that we can use our money. We spend $1.3 billion here in Arizona on incarceration systems. $1.3 billion just out of our state economy here. And there's something like $87 billion a year lost to our annual GDP that would be there if these people were you know, managed, if they had a paper trail, if they had a probation officer, if they were in treatment and therapy, People were keeping track of them, but they could still go home to their family every night. They could still go to work every morning and generate a paycheck so that they can support that family that would just have to fend for themselves while the, while the head of the household is incarcerated. Our our, incarceration popu- our our incarcerated population of women is something like seven to 800% higher than it was in the 80s, Seven to 800 times what it was just a few decades ago. I know women, there's something like 2,000 women that are currently incarcerated for manslaughter because they had a stillbirth or a miscarriage that was no fault of their own, yet they are still held uh, charged and convicted of murder and are serving time. Mm -hmm. Thousands of women in our country are facing this problem right now, on top of the grief of losing the child that they just carried to term that they just had a miscarriage or that they just had a stillbirth. My sister, uh, she had a a child with prune Belly syndrome and the the child was stillborn and it was heartbreaking for the entire family. Now, imagine if because of that, we threw her in jail on top of it. we're, we're, We're moving in the wrong direction when it comes to incarceration in this country. We need to be smarter about how we're using our resources We need to stop signing contracts that commit that we're going to fill so many beds Uh, otherwise we're going to pay millions of dollars in taxpayer money to you just because we didn't lock up enough people perverse incentive it's it's just these perverse incentives over and over and over again and they keep winning that's the takeaway from my five six years of advocacy is that all that every group has been doing is advocating for sensible reforms to our criminal justice system? And instead, we keep getting laws passed that further criminalize, that expand sentences, that are just more and more incarceration. Nobody's working to actually reform the system and come together and try to make it better for the actual people that are going through it in the middle. There's no help being provided, there's zero relief available to people. It is so overwhelming. The suicide rates in this country are sky high. 40,000 people a year, I believe it is, take their own life. And most of those are with handguns. On top, So that's another aspect of the gun violence problem that we have in our society that exists because of other perverse incentives and so on and so forth. And here we are at the bottom of this rabbit hole, just looking up, going, how did we get here and what the hell do we do about it now? Because you look down and you're just there's nothing below you. You're still falling down the rabbit hole. <laughs> there's no parachute. you can you, you, there's no end in sight and, and and I don't know if our nation can survive much longer by doing this to people. Look at the yeah. fractures that we have in our society right now. This, these are no accidents. When When you throw everybody into the same bucket, when you get conditioned to just go, all sex offenders are bad, you, you dismiss, you otherize an entire swath of people that are not a monolith. It's like saying that all black people believe the same thing because they're all black and they all have the same lived experiences. Right. Chris, there is no black perspective. There is that black person's perspective and that black person's perspective and that Asian person's perspective and my white person perspective. There's, You know, it, it, it's, you know, you can speak to it, but that doesn't mean that you are it. And if we don't start acknowledging everybody's individuality and humanity and incentivizing the recognition and, and the, the embracing of people's humanity, then, then what are we even doing? What's the, then what's the goal here? What are, we, what are we even trying for?
0: That's profound to say the least. Um, I think that's an excellent observation uh, and and thanks for that that's I think that's a, that's a good place to put a cap on us our Our domestic policy discussion specifically about the the justice system. one of my takeaways is is there that there's a lot both inside of it, outside of it, at every stage that we could look at. And, and maybe just ask those, you know, some of those questions that you were, you were talking about and, and come up with something. So I, I thank you for, uh, thank you, Dustin, for joining uh, Kate and I here today and um, talking about all these issues. Also, thank you for uh, continuing to uh, do more than just talk about it and, and have some active reform and activism on your side that, you, that you're working to get people to listen to. Is there? Did you have any parting shots, Kate?
1: No, thank you for your time.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Kate. I really
2: appreciate you both having me on. I hope your listeners find this uh, at least provocative, and it, it may challenge some of the things that they may have found to be uh, comfortable. You know, got them out of their comfort zone a little bit, and uh, and I hope it provides opportunities for people to think about some of these issues in in just slightly new ways, and that also that the space opens up for us to all come together and really work on this in a meaningful way. Um, If anybody would like more information from me or about me, my website is justicejava.net and uh, all of my contact information is available there along with my schedule of where my coffee trailer is going to be. Uh, Feel free to come and find me and I'm always happy to chat Justice Reform with people out wherever I may happen to be selling coffee that day.
0: All right. And uh, on that final note, uh, I allow me to recommend Hot Justice, uh, one of his items on his menu. It's delightful uh, if you are a copy. So uh, again, thanks, Dustin. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, man. Sounds great. Thank you both so much. Have a good one.
1: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on social media and check out our Patreon page. Leave us a review on your listening platform if you like the podcast. If you haven't heard your viewpoint or would like to be a guest, email us at info at artofdiscussing.com.
0: Till next time, remember there's more sides to the story than yours. Look, listen, and learn, and keep Keep discussing. discussing.